Let's pray before you're seated. Father, um, as we do every Sunday morning at this time, we reach for our Bibles. And we pray, Lord, that even as our hearts have been encouraged and refreshed with reflection upon the great work of our salvation and Christ's work on our behalf, and we do praise you for the cross and the victory of the empty grave, uh, now we thank you for this wonderful historical account of our Lord Jesus and his great works in people's lives. Would you challenge us? Would you encourage us? Would you conform us to the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, through the power and authority of your word? In Jesus' name, we ask these things. Amen. And thank you. You may be seated. As I was developing the message for today, my mind went to some mountains that we've encountered in our lives. I was thinking back to 1984. Janet and I got married in the spring. By fall, we had taken our first church. I was minister of youth and music at the Grace Fellowship Church in Ephrata, Pennsylvania. We were excited and we were off to a great start. Newlyweds and new in ministry. And then one evening... The phone rang. You've gotten these calls. It was her mom and dad, and things hadn't been right for a few weeks. They hadn't said anything, and they went to the doctor, and they had done some testing and determined that her father had a brain tumor. We were stunned. He was 51 years old at the time. And we prayed. And we prayed and we asked God to please remove that mountain and heal him. And six months later, we buried him. He was just 52 years old. A few weeks after we had received the call for her dad, uh, I came home from one of the very first board meetings I ever attended at our new church. And um, we received a call from my brother. And uh, he had left school at Pensacola Christian in Florida where he was and gone back to mom and dad's in Michigan. And he called to let us know that he had dropped out of school and he was home. It was his senior year. What's going on? He said, I have been diagnosed with acute lymphatic leukemia. He was 20 years old. Eleven months later, after he turned 21, we stood around a sandy grave there near Christie Lake in Lawrence, Michigan. And we committed his body to the ground. A mountain that didn't move. What is that all about? Because when I turn to Matthew chapter 17, and I invite you to turn there, uh, where we are and making our way through the gospel of Matthew in our studies, it appears to me that if we just have enough faith, we ought to be able to move these mountains. I have to tell you that We are encountering a subject today, and we only have really limited time to do it for today. Um, We are not going to answer all of your questions about unanswered prayer today, so I'm warning you. We are not going to answer all of your questions about how to move mountains. But I do trust that our Lord's teaching today will help shed some light on this topic and encourage you. And then even as you go and ponder it, because part of our message today is designed to not be understood immediately. The way our Lord phrased it, it is actually 
in sort of a parable type answer. And whenever he does that, remember that our Lord wants you to just keep thinking about it. You're supposed to think about it. And then he'll show you more truth the more you think about it. Well, let's read our text. We're in Matthew chapter 17. You'll want to get notes nearby. They're in your, inserted in your bulletin if that's helpful to you. Um, as we, we need to cover a good bit of ground in a hurry. Um, let me say before we read our text, actually, let me say two things. The first is, let me remind you that um, like many of the stories we've been encountering in the Gospel of Matthew and our studies in Matthew, we find them again in Mark and Luke. And remember, we call those three Gospels the synoptic Gospels. They, they sync together. John is the one who stands alone. Remember, Luke was not an eyewitness. He was a historian. But the three together, and we're not going to take time to read the other two. We're going to read one of the others. Mark is worth reading this morning. They're all worth reading. Don't get me wrong. Mark, we're going to take time to read this morning because he shed some nuance on the story that we encounter. Um, the second thing I want to say is that when we open up our text today in verse 14, it says, And when they came to the crowd... Okay, so that's a bridge statement. And when they came to the crowd, well, who is they and why were they coming to the crowd? Remember that the text right before this, because of anniversary, we got interrupted. But the Lord, Peter, James and John and our Lord have been up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember, remember that most bizarre scene and making sense out of what in the world was that when our Lord unveiled the flesh enough that, that, that his glory glowed? And, and Elijah and Moses came and spoke with him. And we recognize that one of the things he was doing <clears throat> is he was, he was cementing the faith of Peter, James, and John. And in fact, Peter later on would write about that. As he was trying to convince the, the believers who were scattered in the dispersion to keep the faith and don't give up on Christ. And the reason we know this is true, remember Peter said, because we were on the mount and we saw him in all of his glory. He, he used the mount of transfiguration as an apologetic or a defense for their faith and a reason not to, not to become weak in their faith. And so now they're coming off that mountain, Jesus, Peter, James, and John. And they're coming down. Remember, they had a conversation. And as they come, the nine, the nine disciples who didn't go up have been waiting at the bottom. And we're going to see, and this is why we want to read Mark's gospel as well. We're going to see that, and Matthew mentions it, that a crowd has gathered. They're looking for Jesus. They found the nine disciples. Jesus isn't there. And they just decided if we hang around long enough, we'll see Jesus. Remember that we're at the very waning months of the three-year window of our Lord's ministry here. Let's read the text. And it is a most incredible story. It'll stir your heart. And, and then our Lord's teaching is, is even difficult to grasp. Matthew chapter 17, verse 14. And when they came to the crowd, okay, Peter, James, John, and Jesus. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to them and kneeling before him said... Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. For he often, often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation. Your Bible might say perverted. The ESV translates it twisted. That's what perverted means, twisted or bent. I mean, imagine Jesus saying this. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him 
And the boy was healed instantly. And then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, If you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. And I say, whoa, whoa. Okay, so let's read Mark's account, and then let's break down the story, and then let's draw some conclusions before we leave today. We're over in Mark's gospel. He also, um, uh, Mark and Luke are both in Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 and Luke chapter 9. If you're writing on your notes there, you might mark down Luke 9, 37 to 43. Mark, uh, excuse me, Luke 9, 37 to 43. We are not going to turn there. We're going to go to Mark chapter 9, verses 14 to 21. So Matthew 17, 14 is this account. And then Mark 9, verse 14 also, just like in chapter 17 of Mark. Okay, and Mark is interesting that Mark, you know, is the shortest gospel account, and yet he often gives us more detail in some of these stories. It's very interesting. Here we go. Mark chapter 9, same story, same occurrence. It didn't happen twice. It's just Mark's version of it. It's what Mark recorded under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Mark chapter 9, verse 14, And when they came to the disciples... They saw a great crowd around them. See, now Mark adds this detail. And scribes were arguing with them. I take that to be the nine. All right, so we have a crowd that is gathered. Among the crowd are scribes. These are religious leaders of the day. They were responsible for the text of Scripture. And they were theologians. And the Bible doesn't tell us what they argued about. I take it that they had witnessed this man coming to them and their inability to cast out this demon. And they were trying to poke the guys in the eye over it. And so they started arguing about it. And I suspect, if the disciples were anything like we are, and I suspect they are, we're normal human beings, that they defended themselves emphatically that they could indeed cast out demons. Because you'll recall in Matthew chapter 10, before our Lord sent them out on their first missionary journey, he empowered them to cast out demons and to heal the sick. And they had been doing that. And now all of a sudden, there's a wrench in the gear and they couldn't do it. And the scribes are after them. And so there's hubbub. They, they come off the mountain, Jesus and the men, and then there's this cacophony of, of noise and crowd, and the scribes are arguing, and the disciples are embarrassed, and they're defending themselves. And immediately, all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed. That's at Jesus. And they ran up to him and greeted him. They, they wanted to see him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down. And he foams, that would be at the mouth. And he grinds his teeth. And he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought, him, brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy. And he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. It's a horrible scene. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. 
We don't know how old the boy is. I take it that he's an adolescent, maybe, in fact, that he doesn't call him, you know, it's from childhood. So he's evidently a young man at this point. Verse 22, and, and it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. Now look at this. But if you can do anything, it would be embarrassing to ask Jesus that, wouldn't it? But if you can do anything, how many of you have ever embarrassed yourself in front of God? God, if you could do something here, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and he said, I believe. And then like in parentheses, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, some texts include and fasting. And you'll notice at the end of the Matthew 17 passage, in some of your Bibles, the ESV does not bring it over. It also says by prayer and fasting at the end of nothing will be impossible for you and prayer and fasting. Many people think many um, the scholars and translators believe that the Matthew phrase is not part of the Matthew text and it got added because of the Mark text. And that also in many of the manuscripts, the word fasting is not there, but it was a scribal addition, perhaps. Prayer and fasting, then intense prayer is all they were trying to say. So some of the translations don't bring that over. Now, before we move back to Matthew and we dig into our notes and run through our notes, I want you to... Grab with your mind verse 29. And I want you to see that when the disciples asked Jesus, why couldn't they cast out this demon? That he doesn't give them the story of the mustard seed and moving mountains and nothing is impossible for you. Now, he did say that phrase up, up ahead uh, earlier in the text of Mark. But what he says is, he said to them, when they said, why can't we cast out this demon? Mark says that what Jesus said was, this kind can only come out with much prayer. Fasting. Serious. It's not going to happen in a hurry. Isn't that interesting that Mark left off the story? Now, they're not contradicting each other. They're adding detail. Now, let's go back to Matthew and let's, uh, if you want to, follow along with the notes. But let's break down our story and then let's draw some conclusions that I hope will be helpful and will also help us make sense of this uh, fascinating account. So the first thing we see in our story is we have a picture of humble desperation. A picture of humble desperation. Let your eyes go to Matthew 17, 14. Our Lord comes off the mountain and the crowd is there. You can picture it. And then a man comes out of the crowd. In Mark, it says that he cried out. In Matthew, it says that he came and he got on his knees in front of Jesus. He's a humble man. And he's, he's really burdened. And he comes and he gets on his knees in front of Jesus. We don't do that in our culture. But it's a, it's a moment where he's very contrite, right? He's, he's very humble, He's coming, Lord, you can help me and I need your help. I'm begging of you. I'm on my knees begging you. A picture of humble desperation. And, you know, you stop and think about it. 
Being on your knees before the Lord is not a bad position in which to be. Even in humble desperation. The second thing we see in the passage is the testimony of a, of, of a life of a heartbreaking devastation. A life of heartbreaking de- devastation. Look what he says about the boy. He's kneeling before him. He says, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic. Some of your Bibles might use the phrase lunatic. It's a more literal rendering of the Greek grammar there. And it has the idea of of a lunar craziness. That's where the word comes from. Deals with the moon, lunar, lunatic. Sometimes when the moon is at a certain spot, people act a little funny. Um, I don't know if that's true, if that's old wives' tales, but that's where the word lunatic comes from. It's true. People who run ambulances and fire trucks know it, right? They're giving me the nod. They can tell by the new moon whether they're going to be busy or not. <laughs> so I take it that this guy really did have epilepsy, though. And did you notice in Mark that, because he has the symptoms, right? He's foaming at the mouth. He gets really rigid. He has these seizures. But in Mark's gospel, it, it named the spirit, the demonic spirit, was one that made him deaf and mute. Not necessarily at all the symptoms of epilepsy. Regardless of how you describe this boy, this is a heartbreaking situation. It's devastating to the family. I mean, we've already read, it says, he foams at the mouth, Mark said. He gets rigid as a board. He has these seizures. He can't speak. He's deaf and he's mute. And I don't know if he can make a horrific sound. I don't know if you've heard a mute person make sounds. They come from deep within their chest. And then he jumps in the water and he jumps in the fire. And I I imagine that at this point, when, when Jesus asked for this boy to come to him and the father brings the boy, he's got the scars to show it. And this has been devastating. The father is desperate. We also know from Luke's account that this is an only child. An only child, Luke told us. They didn't have time for more children. And this is unbelievable. I mean, they held their baby, you know? And his eyes were bright and they moved their finger and they goo-gooed and they gaga and they played and they moved his hands and they moved his legs and then the baby began to grow and it just says from childhood. So we don't know if right away these symptoms manifested themselves. You can only imagine that one day then the mother looked down and maybe she saw the first seizure come over her little baby boy. It scared her to death. He had a seizure and his eyes rolled back in his head and he acted funny. And then, and then they noticed that he didn't respond to sound and he, he didn't make sounds like other babies. And then they realized something is wrong with our child. And as the boy grew, he became more active physically. And, and, and in this culture, there would be lots of open fires and open water, well, well uh, pits and stream beds and farm ponds and uh, containers of water. And this demonic activity somehow came over this boy, not only the foaming at the mouth seizures, but he would jump in the fire and, and jump into water and the demon would try to destroy the boy. How many times had this dad dove into water and grabbed his boy and pulled him up before he started breathing water. It was horrible. It's heartbreaking. And here he is. The third thing we see I represent as 
a case of spiritual humiliation. Spiritual humiliation because the story tells us that, that, the, that the man brought his broken boy to Jesus. But of course, Jesus was up on the Mount of Transfiguration and there were nine disciples there. So he says, I asked your disciples, but they could not heal him. And I take it that that's what the scribes were poking at and the argument had broken out over their inability to heal. When we look back at Matthew chapter 10, you can just flip the page. It's right there. It's chapter 10, verse 8, I believe. And uh, just a couple pages back, remember when our Lord sent out the 12, He told them, you know, don't gather, don't collect money, don't do this, don't do that. Just take the coat you're wearing, take your staff. And then in verse 10, it, um, it says, no, that's not it. Verse 8. He said, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. It's the kind of mandate that he gave them back to chapter 17. Evidently, they were used to exercising this kind of spiritual authority and spiritual power. And here they are, and, and they had a faith fail. It didn't work. And it was evidently embarrassing to them. It had caused a hubbub. It was humiliating. And notice then that Jesus responds with what I call, and notice I put quotes on the notes there because I want to be careful. So I'm not 100% sure what to do with this phrase. But I call it a moment of divine frustration. A moment of divine frustration. Notice what it says. Uh, chapter 17. In verse 17, and Jesus answered, O faithless and perverted or twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? And then he asked for the boy to come to him. So what is Jesus saying here? I mean, you got the picture, this devastating situation, this humble man bringing his boy, your disciples, faith failed me. You're here. And Jesus Kind of with, you can almost hear him sigh, can't you? How long am I going to have to put up with these faithless guys? You know, I don't know what all Jesus means there. I've been teaching you. I've been showing you. I've been reminding you. I've been warning you. And then it still happened. What happened? Well, they, they didn't have enough faith to exercise their gifts to heal this boy. Gifts that were empowered to them specifically from our Lord as apostolic healers. And I don't know exactly what happened, but they thought they had it down cold, I guess. And, and then when you put Mark's phrase of, these only come out with much prayer, evidently they didn't pray over it. They just decided they could do it. And, you know, abracadabra, abracadabra, jam, and then nothing happened. And it's like, whoa, here we are. But who's, who is Jesus condemning in this statement of faithlessness? And I think you have to conclude when you look at it, he's kind of condemning all of them. You know, when you look at the passage in, uh, in, in Mark and in Luke, one of the things, we just read it in Mark, as a matter of fact, I'm thinking now. In, in Mark, he looked at the father and the father exhibited some faithlessness, didn't he? He said, if you could do anything about this, and Jesus said, if you can, of course I can, basically. And, and then he said, if you believe, and then he said, I believe. And remember what he said right after that? Lord, help my unbelief. Have you been there? <laughs> yeah, I believe, I believe. Um, help my unbelief right now, Lord, please. 
We want to believe, right? We're trying to be strong in our faith. But Lord, strengthen my faith. And so evidently the father had some doubt level. I mean, if you had raised that boy and you had dove into water after him and you had pulled him out of the fire and, and you had put up with all that all those years and tried to console your wife and tried to take care of your family, do you think that anything's going to change? I don't think anything's going to change. I don't care what anybody does. It's not going to change. So the father lacked faith. And we know that the disciples lacked faith because in verse 20 of our text today, it says it. When they ask him, why couldn't we do this? The first thing he says to them is, because of your little faith. You lack faith. So the father lacked faith. The disciples lacked faith. We also know that our Lord in earlier passages will not take time to turn there, but he looked across the the landscape of, of Israel and the Jewish community And he longed for them to accept him, but they didn't. He came unto his own, John said, and what? And they would not receive him. They rejected him. They lacked faith. So it was a statement to the community at large. And our Lord is almost to the cross. He knows he's going to leave. And so I don't know that I can unpack the complete ramifications of his statement. But, but at some level, perhaps in his humanity, there was a weariness. It wasn't a sinful weariness. Our Lord could not sin. He was 100% human. He was 100% God. And in his humanity, we know that he got weary. And at some level, like a math teacher trying to teach addition and subtraction to a bunch of first or second graders or something, and, and you're past Christmas and they still don't have it, you're like, what am I going to do with you people? It's like, how often do I have to show you? When are you going to get it? Because hadn't he already healed multiple children? This isn't the first time a broken-hearted parent had brought a child to Jesus in Matthew, right? Remember? Remember the centurion came about his servant's boy, or child and beg Jesus to heal him. Remember the uh, Phoenician woman. Remember the Gentile woman came. And remember what Jesus said there. That's an interesting story. Remember he said, you know, the dogs are under the table and just get away from me, Gentile woman, dog kind of thing. And he was testing her faith, remember? And then remember she had the perfect answer. Yeah, but even the dogs get to eat crumbs off their master's table. In other words, Lord, if I could just have one of your crumbs, that's all I need. And he looked at her and he said, there's not faith like this in all of Israel. How great is your faith? Isn't it interesting that our Lord would look at a bent over, broken, begging Gentile woman and commend her for her faith and his own disciples? He said, where's your faith? Over and over. You're with me. I'm showing you. And I think that's what's coming out of this. Where's your faith? What am I going to do with this bent generation that just won't get it? Well, let's move on with a powerful word. Number five, we have a powerful word of restoration. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? They bring the baby to Jesus, the, the, the child to Jesus. And he says... Um, Bring him to me, this young man, verse 18, and Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. Bam! It's great, isn't it? A word, the master of the universe. And every time I read this kind of stuff, I have to ask myself and ask my congregation, why would we ever be embarrassed of the master of the universe? Why would this Lord Jesus, why would we ever be embarrassed to bear his name as Christians? He's a wonderful Lord Jesus. He's a a beautiful Savior. He's the master of the universe. He can speak and demons flee. 
I really like that and I want to be with him. And it's a true story. It really happened. Let me just say a brief word. It's not part of our message today, but people wonder about demon possession all the time in the New Testament and in the Gospels. So let me quickly say, because we're beyond time already, that um, I, I, I have a few thoughts on why are there so many demons in the Gospels? And, and, and I think this. I think that in the presence of the physical Lord Jesus in the body... Our Lord Jesus present in the masses of people. Now they were vulnerable from probably false religions and things. Just like people today are vulnerable to demon possession and to being possessed. And don't think for a minute. I would say, I would suggest that demon possession worldwide and even in the United States is perhaps worse now than it was then. But when the Lord Jesus walked among people, if they had a demon in them, the demon couldn't help but scream out. Because of, it's like a magnet or something. That's the master of the universe. And they would cry out. And so in the presence of the power of Christ in all of his deity, even though he was trapped in humanity, the demons could not not respond to the king of the universe. And so it came out. So I suspect that today, if the Lord walked through a crowd at Walmart or a ball game or something, that demons would actually cry out. Because I think we're around demon-possessed people a lot. You just don't know it. There's lots of ways it manifests itself. Ambulance and fire people probably give you some testimonies about that too. And so I just think that's, that's part of it. I also think that it is possible that in the agenda, you know, Galatians 4.4 says, At just the right time, Jesus was born. So this was just the right time, just the right place for God's plan of the ages to unfold. And he put him at a time and a place where there was some spiritual darkness so that his authority and his power over Satan and demons could be demonstrated time and time again. And so there needed to be some demon-possessed people around so that Jesus could show his power. That's what I think. That's all I'm going to say about demons. I pretty much can't prove any of that. We have this powerful word of restoration. And now quickly, let's wrap up the text part and draw a conclusion and we'll go. We have a difficult piece. Uh, we have a question about the situation, a question about the situation. So notice what happens. Why could we not cast him out? There's the question. The disciples have Jesus alone in private. They ask the question and Jesus responds with a difficult piece of information. Jesus responds with a difficult piece of information. And the information is this because of your lacking faith, because of your little faith. Well, I think that stung the disciples, don't you think? Kind of hurt my feelings a little bit here. You think I don't have faith? Well, you just demonstrated it, right? And then Jesus goes on with this, what I call, I'm sorry for a lack of a theological kind of term, but it's a mind-boggling illustration, I think. What is this illustration he gives? Let me stop and read it. He then says, okay, you're lacking in faith. And if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, of a mustard seed you would be able to say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. Whoa. So they say, you don't have faith. All you need, and so what we begin to picture is if I just had faith like a grain of a mustard seed, and we talked about this before because this isn't the first time our Lord has used a mustard seed as an illustration. Remember in the parables about the kingdom, we had the parable of the mustard seed. 
He uses another parable here, a story. And that's what I meant by this is lawnmower time now. Okay, you, on your riding lawnmower, you are supposed to think for about an hour and a half about the mustard seed growing up into a tree and what in the world that has to do with being able to say to a mountain, move, and the mountain will move. So this is a perfect Jesus answer. I mean, Jesus is worse than Jim Shoopy. You ask a question. And the answer he gives you is like, what am I supposed to do with that? I thought you were going to tell me the answer. And Jesus gives him an answer. And the answer is, if you would just do this. And he gives him this mind-boggling illustration. And so, what does it mean? And, and it means that it leads to a life without limitation. The final phrase, and nothing will be impossible for you. And we always emphasize the meaning of words here, don't we? If words mean anything, and they do, then this is what it says. Then that's what you do. And it says, if you had this kind of faith, you could move the mountain and nothing will be impossible for you. So what in the world is Jesus teaching them? Sometimes it's helpful to find out what Jesus is teaching by figuring out what Jesus is not teaching. And I think that what he's not teaching is that faith is for moving real mountains. And the reason I think that is because there's no testimony anywhere in Scripture of mountains being moved. The prophets didn't do it. Elijah, Moses didn't do it. They parted the water, but they didn't move mountains. I'm talking about like bulldozer, caterpillar, you know, call up caterpillar. Hey, have I got a deal for you? You know, you got a lot of earth to move. I can move it. North Mountain is over here in the morning. And by evening, we've moved North Mountain over there. And the whole community is confused. And Christians are at it again. No, don't go there. I don't think that's what it is. There's no, you know, this is, listen, we try to take the Bible literally, but we also understand there's a such thing as figures of speech. And this is hyperbole. This is exaggerating. And wasn't Jesus the master of hyperbole? Jesus always used illustrations like this that made you think. It's hyperbole. It's exaggerating to make a point. So the first thing is, it's not real mountains. Don't call Caterpillar and tell them you can save them a lot of money or that you're going to put them out of business. All right. Secondly, and we'll put two and three together. I don't have time to amplify. They're very similar, really, probably by the time they're done. That faith is a magic wand to get our way on any day. Or that faith is able to manipulate the hand of God. Listen, I don't think what Jesus is saying here to his disciples, if you had enough faith that could even be as big, see a mustard seed was the smallest of the garden seeds. It was tiny seed. But when Jesus used it in the parable of the kingdom, he talked about how it grew and they grew 12, 15, 20 feet big with branches. And that was the parable, remember, that the birds then come in and find shelter under its branches. The kingdom of heaven is like this. It's something that grows and it's a place of shelter for all from all parts of the world. And isn't the kingdom of God like that? And his church is a shelter to all who come in. But it grows from a little. Remember, it was just a few people at the time of the ascension and then it grew big. And so we're looking at a mustard seed, but if you say, man, it's kind of like a televangelist. If you just have a little bit of faith, you can have a jet out on a runway in your own private hangar and pilot just like me. And it's all my faith. I got it by faith. So, man, that's nonsense. He didn't get it by faith. He got it by ripping off weak people and manipulating people. 
So this is not like a it's like a big lever that's hanging down from heaven and you jump up and grab the lever and if you have enough faith you can pull the lever and heaven opens and it dumps all the stuff out on you the way you want it to be. Heal my brother, heal my father-in-law. If I have enough faith I can grab the lever, pull it down and God'll do what I want. I can control his hand. Now who can explain prayer, really? Who can explain prayer moving the hand of God? Because at some level, prayer is moving the heart, mind, and hand of God, isn't it? And yet He is sovereign, and yet He is in control, and He is unchanging, and He knows what is best. And assuredly, He's only going to do what is in His will. Don't think of this this way. I don't think you can do that. And and fourthly, that, that lack of faith is always the reason for unanswered prayer. Because we'll feel guilty about that, won't we? I say, man, if I just had enough faith, I'd be able to, I'd be able to do whatever, you know, get my brother-in-law, my brother healed from leukemia. I just don't have enough faith. My loved one's dying and I just don't have enough faith. They went ahead and died. That's, an, that's a testimony of the faithlessness of our family. I don't think that at all. You cannot say that biblically because, and we can take time to do a whole study now on all of the reasons that prayer doesn't get answered. And one of the things you'll find, for example, would be like in Daniel chapter 10. Um, Daniel chapter 10, you have an example of Daniel, a man of God praying, and his answer is delayed. And the reason it's delayed is because we figure out from the text that there's this huge unseen spiritual battle going on. And the answer to his prayer was being delayed by demonic forces. And the archangel Michael even comes and assists the angel that was delivering the answer of prayer to Daniel. And Michael has to come and beat him back in some spiritual Frank Peretti warfare battle that goes on. And then he brings the answer to Daniel. And he said, here's your answer. And it works. And it didn't have anything to do with a lack of faith. And how about the Apostle Paul? And he said three times, I begged God to remove this thorn from my flesh. We don't know what the thorn is. Whether it was physical or whether it was, whether it was oppressive people in his life, we don't know for sure. It was something really serious that really bothered him. And our Lord said, no, it's my will for you to just have that. And sometimes, you know, when you pray and you pray in faith believing and the answer ends up being, no, it's my will for you to just have that old clunker, not that brand new Corvette over there. So it is. And it doesn't have anything to do with your faith. So be careful with taking the pendulum of this text and going too far with it. I don't know that I have all the answers either this morning that will satisfy everyone. But let me quickly wrap up now with what we should learn from this story. I think that clearly in the story, there is a a lesson about how vulnerable we are to self-reliance. I think that's why the disciples had a faith fail. Because they were self-reliant. Jesus implied that they could have answered that. But that they needed to pray more. And whenever we need to pray more, what does it mean? It means we're too self-reliant. Listen, nothing indicates self-reliance more than prayerlessness. When I am prayerless, it is a clear indicator that I am in no panic about being in control because I can handle this one. And when planes start hitting buildings or tumors start showing up between your ears, we are on our knees, on our face, begging God in prayer. But when it's not like that and the sun's shining and everybody's happy and we're eating Mountain Dew and Five Guys drinking Mountain Dew and eating five guys. I don't need God, right? 
And so I can do this, I can do this, I can do this. There is spiritual overconfidence in the disciples. And I think we're vulnerable to that. And I think it's a reminder that we are to always pray. We are to be dependent upon the Lord. We need to keep praying, keep praying. Don't give up. Secondly, I think that our faith should be growing. I think the lesson of the mustard seed must have something to do with a growing faith. Based upon the way the Lord used the mustard seed before, he talked about if you had faith like this, little seed, but the seed doesn't stay little, it's just going to grow and grow and grow. And the Lord is, our Lord is preparing the disciples for ministry without him present. And he wants them to be dependent upon him and he wants their faith to keep growing. Keep growing and you'll see that nothing will be impossible for you in the days ahead. When I go to heaven and you start planting churches and preaching the gospel, you're going to see that you've got a special power here, but keep your faith going. So I don't think this is a quickie thing. I don't think this is a really quick thing. I think this is a process in the Christian life of living out a dependence upon God in prayer. And the longer you pray, the more your faith grows. And have you been with some old, shriveled up, godly people who love the Lord and aren't grouchy at all? And you sit down with them, and what do they want to talk about? Oh, let me tell you how faithful God has been. Let me tell you how He's answered prayer. They don't doubt a thing. And they have grown in their faith, and they have grown in their faith, and they have seen God at work. I think that's part of the answer anyway. Thirdly, I also think we get from this that faith and prayer are inseparably linked. Faith and prayer are inseparably linked. And the exhortation of Jesus to the disciples that this one only comes out with much prayer. He didn't, you know, he said, oh, you got to have that little seed of faith. If you'd had even, even as much as a little mustard seed worth of faith, you'd have been able to move the mountains. That, that wasn't his point at all. His point was you quit. You gave up too soon. This one by much prayer. In other words, you got to keep praying and keep praying and keep praying. I think I'm looking at some people with some broken kids. I don't know if they jump in the fire or foam at the mouth, but they're driving you out of your mind. And they've broken your heart. And some of them are grown and they have kids and those kids are broken. And you're, and you're wondering. You're wondering if God is ever going to do anything with them. And then you read this and you think, if I only had faith like a grain of mustard seed, I could turn my family around. No, you keep praying. You keep growing in your faith and you keep trusting that God has a plan because point number four, once again in our story, is that no one is too broken for Jesus. Do not lose heart. Do not lose faith. That's what Jesus is teaching. Keep going and you will see great things happen. I don't know when. I don't know how. And he might say no. I have a memory that is precious to me. And it is of being upstairs in our house when I was in middle school age. And down in the kitchen, my mom had to get up and go to work some because my dad pastored a, a real small Bible church. And my dad would be up getting breakfast and lunches ready for us going off to school. And he would be down there singing. And my dad wasn't a very good singer as far as a singing voice goes. He loved music and he made us all sing. And he would be singing... Got any rivers you think are uncrossable? Got any mountains you can't tunnel through? God specializes in things thought impossible. 
He does the things others cannot do or something like that. I can just hear him. So you got some mountains that need moved, some rivers to cross. Don't beat yourself up over your lack of faith. Begin to grow your faith with a rich prayer life, with a dependence on Christ, and wait upon Him to see His hand move. Okay? And so, Father, we commit ourselves to You for another week as we go out into this brutal world. I pray for covering and protection over all of our congregation. And I pray that you would teach us the lesson of the mustard seed and the moving of mountains and what we're supposed to get from this as we meditate upon this little parable and this most remarkable story. Thank you for our Lord Jesus and the beautiful way he restored this family. Father, would you restore some families around here that need restored? And we'll give you the praise and the glory and be amazed at what you do. In the meantime, grow our faith and help us to understand what it means to see you work through us and accomplish great things. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.